26 years ago this month in this chapel in an event like this, I was called to be a missionary to Muslims. 24 years ago this month, my wife Jennifer in this chapel was called to be a missionary to Muslims. And it's our prayer that Jesus would do that again. I want to share three points with you this morning. Jesus calls us to himself. Jesus calls us to die. And Jesus calls us to the difficult places and difficult peoples of the world. Exodus 33, verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. When his face shone coming down the mountain, verse 29, he did not know it. Acts 5, 4-15, believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know the stories, Moses spent extravagant time with Jesus, his face so bright he had to veil it, his people could see God shining forth. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, his shadow heals as he walks by, obviously so full of the power of Jesus that his presence brought healing. Commanded in Matthew 28 to make disciples, we're given the means in John 15 that if we will spend a lot of time with Jesus, we will bear fruit. Some time ago in Cairo, I passed a demon-possessed man on the street. I did not know him, but I could tell that he was afflicted with demons. I could feel it. I could see it in the wildness of his eyes. I could smell the filth from his body. I could sense the evil emanating out of his being. I shuddered as I walked by because I could tangibly in all of my senses discern the power of evil emanating out from this afflicted man. And as I walked by him, goosebumps down my spine, I felt the Holy Spirit ask me this question. You felt the evil emanating off of him. What did he feel from you? What effect did my passing shadow have? What light shined out from my face? What I felt for evil, did he feel for righteousness? What I felt of darkness, did he sense of light? I shuddered and recoiled at the filth on him. Was there anything about me that wooed that man to the Lord Jesus Christ? When you walk into a room, can anyone senses that the atmosphere change? When you join a conversation, does the tone shift inexorably towards what is pure? Is there something indelible? Is there something unmovable? Is there something commanding of the presence of Jesus on your life and emanating out of you so that people can sense it before you've opened your mouth and walked into the room? Does your life drip with the glory of God? Is there a gravitas? Is there a sense of the glory and presence of Jesus that can be felt, that shines out of your eyes, that's in your shadow, that before you open your mouth to speak, and we must 
open our mouth and speak. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But before you've done that, is there something of God that has gone ahead of you so that when you do open your mouth, they're leaning forward to hear, what does this woman of God have to say? And if that is not there, why not? You probably never heard her name. Born in 1910, died in 1932, 22 years old. Her name was Helen Ewan. She was a British gal. Her biographer writes, The manifestation of Jesus' glory astonished us all on Helen. Hers was only a common life, but was lit up with the glory of God. I only wondered how she could stand so much glory in her fragile earthenware container, being full of the Holy Spirit, she was full of Christ. She was an amazing soul winner. She would go out in the streets and bring prostitutes to her home and lead them to the Lord. She would bring drunks to the church and lead them to the Lord. She would walk the several miles, even in winter, to the university so she could pass out gospel literature and on the way back. She would get up at five o'clock in the morning to intercede for the lost around the world and she would not turn on the heat because she felt, if I turn on the heat, I'll fall asleep and besides, why should I be comfortable in prayer when missionaries to the unreached are suffering around the world? but it was not her intercession and it was not her evangelism that she's remembered for. You see, her university colleagues testify that they would be in a prayer meeting, direction towards the front, and their eyes would be closed, and they could tell when Helen walked into the room because the atmosphere of that prayer meeting shifted. Evangelists of the day would seek her out, not to sing, not to present publicly, that wasn't her gift. They just said, Helen, sit in the room and pray, because when she was there, the power of Jesus was manifest, and there was more healings and deliverances and salvations and anointing on the speaker just because Helen was in the room. Died at 22. A little while later, some university students were gathered in the living room, and they were just having a good time together, and the pastor looked over at the mantle and there was a picture of Helen. She said, oh look, isn't that a picture of Helen Ewan? And the room went silent. She said, Jim, her husband, have I said anything wrong? She hadn't, but all the students fell to their knees and began to cry out to the Lord because just the mention of her name, they remembered the presence of God that was on that woman. And they said, oh Jesus, fill us and possess us with the Holy Spirit that your presence is so powerful, shining from our eyes and beaming out of our shadow that we change the atmosphere whenever we enter the room. Think of it. Long after she was dead, her memory compelled people to be closer to Jesus. This is the glory of God. This is the shining face of Moses. This is the shadow of Peter healing the sick. It's not magic. It's not forced. It's the instrumentality of the human vessel, the jar of clay so full of Jesus that it comes out of your face and it's in your shadow. Recently in Istanbul, Turkey, a Yemeni believer had gone to a conference and he felt that the Lord wanted him to stay afterwards. And he walked the streets of that great city just looking for Yemeni to witness to for three days Nothing happened, and so he got discouraged. He thought, maybe I missed the will of the Lord. He decided to go to a mosque. He took his Bible. It was between the hours of prayer, 12 noon and 3.30. So he was allowed to go in. He looks like an Arab, of course, obviously. And so he went in, and he sat down on the carpet of that mosque, and he began to read his Bible. He read his Bible for an hour, and nothing happened. And so he thought, well, I'm just striking out, and he got up to leave. But a, a force compelled him to fall back onto the ground. He couldn't get up off of the carpet. It wasn't that his legs had fallen asleep. He couldn't physically stand up. So he began to worry. 
Is God judging me for reading my Bible in the mosque? Are demons afflicting me? He didn't know what was going on, so he just stayed there, perplexed. After some time, a young man, 22 years old, comes up to him and taps him on the shoulder and says, Sir, can I talk to you? Elated because of two things. Number one, it's a Yemeni dialect. Number two, that power that restrained him has been lifted and he can stand up. The man says, can I talk to you over in the women's section? Because my young wife is over there. So he goes over there and this is what they say. Disillusioned with Islam, we fled the fighting of Yemen and we came to Istanbul. And together we had a vision. We saw this mosque. We saw you sitting where I found you. And light was coming down from heaven, shining into you. And then light was emanating out of your back and it was shining into us. Sir, can you tell us what this means? And then they said this, that vision happened two months ago. I have to work part-time. So my wife has been coming down to the mosque every day for two months waiting for you. Today when she arrived at the mosque, you were getting up to leave. And so she prayed, oh God, don't let that man leave. And you fell back to the ground and gave me time to get down here from my place of employment. So we went to their house and from six o'clock that night until six o'clock the next morning, starting with Moses ostensibly and all the prophets, he explained Jesus to them. And that young man and his young wife from Yemen gave their heart to Jesus. Amen. Which begs the question again, what's in your shadow? What's shining off of your face? What's beaming out of your back? What light, what joy, what radiance, what blessing, what peace is shooting out of your being so that before you open your mouth, and again you must, because we're town criers, we're messengers, we're heralds, before you open your mouth, those in your presence sense the presence of God. So they lean in for what you have to say. Moses was with Jesus, you could tell, Peter, multiple times in those first chapters of Acts full of the Holy Spirit, you could tell there is no magic here, there is no shortcut. Jesus is calling us to spend extravagant time with him. I'm going to unpack that in chapel tomorrow. You want your face to shine? You want your shadow to heal? You want light to shine out your back? The only way is to spend extravagant time with Jesus. And Jesus is calling you to that. Jesus is also calling us to die. John 12, 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh and the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Many of you are familiar with the Bonhoeffer quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And the whole live dead thinking and movement is based on these two verses. It's nothing new. It's just a, a new way of saying the crucified life or dying to self. In the universal application, we're saying every Christian needs to die to self. And in the missional application, we're talking about church planning, unreached people groups and teams. Your culture, this American culture, has been cruel to you. This culture has taught self-gratification from the cradle. And we're now ruled by toddler tyrants or petulant presidents. We're bombarded with the message that indulgence is harmless, that safety is preferred to risk, and that glory is found in success and popularity rather than in the biblical model that glory is found in shame and suffering. 
It's not unique to your age. It's not unique to this generation. Exacerbated perhaps in these days, but it's not new. Every generation has to stare down the mortal enemy of self. Morris Williams said that the first requisite for the man or woman of God that would be used in missions is self-denial. He says we're taught not to deny ourselves, but the man or woman of God that would rise, whom God can really use, must come to a place where they say, Lord, I'll deny myself and go without. I'll do whatever is necessary to bring salvation to the unreached of the world. If you want to be a global Christian, if you want to be a life-giving Christian, it starts by dying. You see, in the physical world, first we live and then we die. In the spiritual world, first we die and then we live. And Jesus is asking us to die, to give up what you thought your career would be, to give up what you thought your trajectory or timing would be, to give up perhaps where you wanted to go, certainly to give up what you have predetermined to do. And are you willing today to say, yes, Lord, I die to my idea of the life and the future that I have planned out for my course. I even die to my idea of mission. Yes, Lord, as Heath says, I say yes before I even know the question and nothing is as tragic in Christian life and service as the one who tries to accomplish this before they have died and you set out in the meager fabric of your own living and Jesus is calling every single one of you no matter your eventual geography to die because the lost of this world and this country do not need our putrid, uncrucified selves. The unreached do not need your tyrannical nature leading the way. The lost of the world, they need the fragrance of a crushed will, a broken heart, a contrite spirit. The Lord is very near to the crucified. He hung amongst them, and He is very far away from those who dwell on self-made thrones. And every Christian who would say yes to Jesus and yes to mission, must be radically committed to not getting their own way. And to dying daily, as Paul said, and to delight in the rule of God over us as evidenced by our submission to others. You who have said in one form or another, I want the cross, do you see that when it comes to crucifixion, others have to crucify you. You cannot crucify yourself. And anyone who attempts to do that becomes a twisted, self-spiritual, ugly, rancid Christian. We are not responsible for our own crucifixion. Jesus is. And Jesus will hand the hammer to those who are near. He will hand it to your spouse. He will hand it to your roommate. He will hand it to your colleague. He will hand it to your leader. He will hand it to your national partner. He will hand it to your Muslim friend. And what Jesus is calling you to do is to say to that one who is near, who Jesus is going to use to crucify you, pound away at me no matter my protest. Listen not to the screams and wails of my flesh. Love me enough to nail my limbs to the splintered cross. Love me enough to let me hang there in misery cut not my cocoon rescue me not from Calvary friend help me die because my self rule is a poisonous monster and I have suffered too long under that tyranny Jesus is calling you to die Joseph Alanine wrote did you ever hear of a man so mad as to rush upon the sword's point to avoid the scratch of a pin 
or run upon a roaring cannon rather than in danger getting wet feet. Why, this is the best wisdom of the distracted world who would sin rather than suffer. And what he means is this. Rather than die to self, which like a pinprick will hurt for a moment, we rush to indulge ourselves and impale ourselves on the sword of selfish living, doing more injury to self and Savior than if we would have just taken up the cross and died. Rather than die to self, which for a moment is inconvenient, like wet feet, we rush upon the machine gun of self-gratification and we're blown to bits doing more injury to the gospel than if we'd have just handed the hammer to the one who is near and said, crucify me. Do you want to be a global Christian? Before you can conquer the world, you must conquer the selfish tyrant within. He who would wish to reform the world, Francis Xavier, must first reform himself. Let me be clear. Jesus doesn't want us dead. Jesus came to bring life and life abundantly. I'm not talking about suicide. It's not being an Eeyore pessimist. It's not about darkness or gloom or despair. I'm not even talking about martyrdom. I'm not talking about graves or tombs or skulls or bravado. Waste and foolishness have no heart in God's plan. There is no crown for stupidity. To die to self is about life. It's getting rid of what is putrid so the mortal life of Jesus can be manifest in your mortal body. It is about life. But in order to get to that life of Jesus, you are going to have to die. The world moves from life to death, is eternally depressed. We move from death to life and are eternally at joy. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the glory of God comes out of my face. And the power of God is in my shadow. And His illuminance is coming out of my back because I have died to what is putrid that I might live to what is magnificent. Jesus wants you to live, but you get there by dying. We die to self that we might overcome fear and we overcome fear with the joy of eternal life and the joy of eternal life is our core invitation. Come, O Arab, out of the grave. Rise, O Somali, out of your tomb. Come forth, O Lazarus the Turk. Arise and shine, O Tuareg. Leap to life, you Pashtun or Bengali or Kashmiri. O Muslim, O Hindu or Buddhist. Awake, come out of your death that life might reign. Jesus, we will heed the call to die that we might live and others live with us. Jesus is calling us to Himself. Jesus is calling us to die. And the reason He makes those two invitations is for this third one. So He can call us to glorify Him in the most difficult places and amongst the most difficult peoples of earth. Romans 15.20 I made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, in all the difficult places, as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You maybe have never heard of the name Dr. Robert Moffat. He was the father of David Livingston, He's the one who said, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. 
These words burned into Livingston and breathed fire into that missionary heart, and so Livingston struck north. He was lost to the world for a season, so the New York Times hired a brash young American named Henry Stanley to go find Livingston, 1871, the famous Dr. Livingston, I presume. But after that encounter, Stanley continued north into Uganda. He encountered Arab slave traders. Shocked at how these Arabs were spreading Islam amongst the Bantu tribes in the heart of Africa, Stanley appealed to England for missionaries. A man named Alexander McKay responded and went to Uganda through Zanzibar, the southern route, with the Church Missionary Society, the Anglicans. He arrived in 1879 and began to try and plant the church amongst, at that time, the unreached. After long, difficult labor, he only had six young converts. He was vying with the ear of the Ugandan king, King Tessa, with the Arab slave traders led by a man named Mujassi, an Arab Muslim, out of the Omani Sultanate in Zanzibar. McKay's trying to talk to the king about Christianity. Mujassi's talking to King Tessa about Islam. And as the king would go, so the nation. 1885, Bishop James Hannington, who is the head of all of equatorial Africa, he decides to go and travel from the north into northern Uganda to meet up with Alexander McKay to encourage him. But as he approaches from the north, the Arab slave traders use this as an occasion against the missionary work. And they say to King Tessa, these six Ugandan Christians are agitating against your rule. They have summoned a colonial army from the north and they are coming to overthrow your kingdom. And so Tessa sends soldiers and Bishop Hannington in the north is martyred and these six young men are arrested and three of them are tortured. Three of them are released so they can spread the terrifying news. And they took these three Ugandan believers, your age, they cut their arms off, they tied them to a wooden scaffolding, they lit a fire underneath that scaffolding, and they began to burn these young believers alive even as they bled to death. And while they are burning and bleeding on that scaffold, these Muslim soldiers began to taunt them. And this is what they say. Pray now to Isa al-Masih. Pray now to Jesus the Messiah. If you think that he can do anything to help you. And burning and bleeding on that scaffolding, those three young students opened their mouths and began to sing a song that missionary Alexander McKay had taught them. And this is what they sang. Daily, daily, sing to Jesus. Sing my soul, his praises do. All he does deserves our praises and our deep devotion too. They sang until the fire burned their mouths shut and then they died. McKay was privy to that. He watched it and he realized something. He said, not only do we need to resist the advance of Islam in the heartland of Africa, but we also need to do something about the source. We need to resist it at the source. And at that time, the Omani Sultanate was the most powerful Arab empire. They are the ones sending the Arab slave traders down into the heart of Africa. So he made an appeal to England and he said, would you send five of your best young men, five of your brightest, and would you send them to Oman? Would you send them to Muscat so that we can resist this vile spread of Islam right where it is emanating out of. Do you know how many responded? None. It's an old retired missionary from India. His name was Thomas Falpi French. 
He'd done amazing things in the Indian subcontinent. 66 years old, disgusted that no young men would have the courage to strike out to plant the church in the heart of the imperial Arab power of the day. He went to Muscat Oman, and because of the frailty of his age and the difficulty of the climate, after two months, he died. A. E. Mool, a writer and evangelist of that day, he wrote the famous epitaph. It says this, Where Muscat fronts the orient sun, twixt heaving sea and rock steep, his work of mercy scarce begun, a saintly soul has fallen asleep. And here's the couplet. Who comes to lift the cross instead? Who takes the standard from the dead? Who indeed? Livingston took that cross, the idea of it, from Moffat. Stanley took it from Livingston. McKay took it from Stanley. French took it from McKay. Who now takes it all these years later from Bishop French? You see, the gospel, starting in South Africa, thrusting north into the subcontinent and in the heart of Africa, then the appeal to take it right into the Arab heartland. Who now rises to take that standard from the obedient dead? Who will lift the cross in Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim territories? Let me just use one example. In 1900, the Arab world was 13% Christian. You maybe didn't know that. 2016, 116 years later, the Arab world is now 5% Christian. Iraq had 5 million Christians five years ago. Excuse me, 2.5 million Christians. We've lost 90% of our Christians in Iraq because of persecution, immigration, and trouble. We're down to 230,000 Christians in Iraq. Syria, two years ago, 19% Christian. And now, 60% of Syrians are internally or externally displaced. Most of those, or many of those, are Christian background families. And so, who knows what it is? Probably less than 5% of Syria is Christian today. Egypt, in the revolution, we lost 250,000 Christian families. They fled, and that's an average of four a family minimally. We lost a million Christians in Egypt in one year. At the same time, about one and a half million Muslims are born in Egypt every year. That's a plus-minus ratio of two and a half million within one year. Every year in Egypt, in order for us to take one inch of spiritual ground, we would need to lead a million and a half Muslims to Jesus every single year. In the history of the last 19 centuries, the church in the Middle East has never been less Christian than it is right now. Who comes to lift the cross instead? Who takes the standard from the dead? Who indeed? Who indeed? Jesus is calling us to the difficult places. I want to end with a story from China. Samuel Pollard had served after learning language and culture for many years. See no fruit. He became desperate. So he began to fast and pray, asking for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Lord did that filled him gloriously with the Holy Spirit. He says, The glory came down and so filled me that I felt the Holy Ghost from my head to the soles of my feet, about as much as I could stand, and for a minute I thought I should faint or die. I had the promise at that encounter that we are going to have thousands of souls. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. Some folks may say, He's a fool, let them, we'll have our thousands. Some say, He's gone mad, so be it, we'll have our thousands. He's young and enthusiastic. Yes, glory to God I am. And we'll have our thousands. 
I would not be here with my colleagues and my leaders if we did not believe that God is going to use your generation to reach the difficult places on earth. We would not be here if we did not believe that Jesus is calling brave men and women to go to the hard places. We would not be here if we thought that was a futile promise. You will have your thousands. You will have your thousands. But we also stand here in the clear light of Scripture and the sober rock of experience. No soul is won quickly or thoughtlessly. No great work of God is easy. Haste does not make disciples. Rush does not plant the church. And in this age of instant media and instant gratification and instant results, missionaries are going to have to accept difficult processes in difficult places. And if this world is going to be reached, somebody out here is going to have to to lift that standard in the most difficult places of the world and stubbornly beat their head against the stone walls of hell until something cracks. You will have your thousands, but not without dying, not without coming to Jesus, and not without a long, stubborn fight. This is what happened to Pollard. The Lord breaks through and gives him the promise. And after six years of labor, he has two believers. Another nine years and no believers. Fifteen years of labor and two believers. He stood on the promise that he'd have his thousands. And then amongst the Miao people of China, the Holy Spirit broke through and they began to come in their tens and their hundreds and then their thousands. They flooded into his house and into his compound. They would bring their camping material and their little stoves and they're in every room of his house. He couldn't get away from them. They were so hungry for discipleship. So he goes up to his bedroom, locks the door. Ten of them go outside, scamper up the wall of his house into his bedroom window, sit on his bed, pleased as punch that they have the missionary to themselves because they are so hungry. It took 15 years, but he had his thousands. 16 years after the promise. Hudson Taylor wrote this. China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything. And at every time, even life must be secondary. Of such men and such women, Dr. Anderson, do not fear to send us too many. They are more precious than rubies. Jesus is calling right now. He's calling to himself. He's calling you to die to self. And he's calling some of you to difficult places and difficult peoples. Here's how I'd like to respond. In a reverent moment, no music, no fuss. If you sense Jesus calling you to one or all of these, to himself, to die, to difficult places. Would you just come now to the altars and let's pray.